no, Why don't look, we welcome no, Pastor no. Chris I, I this thought... morning? I saw who was clapping and who wasn't. <laughs> I might have words for people. In fact, I do have words for people, but nothing to do with the clapping. You'll be glad to know. Easter. Easter's coming in, well, three Sundays and then it's Easter. And so I was tasked with doing a series leading up to Easter. Three Sundays. And you know, I've been preaching for 20 years, so easy peasy. I just invent something. Um, but as I was thinking about it and praying about it, guess what happened? I, I feel that God spoke to me and he gave me an Easter message, which is really good. I, I, I'm happy about that. I'll be preaching on Good Friday. It's called The Three Crosses. And it's all about the three crosses on, at Calvary at Easter. It was, it's it's going to be a great message. And I said, yeah, but Lord, that's four, that's four preachers off. I want this, this Sunday's. And there was this deafening silence. And uh, I said, look, we need something to lead up into Easter, Lord. Something to excite people about Easter. Sort of something from, something from the Gospels. And I thought, well, that's actually a bit unfair because I know that the way we've divided up the year, somebody else is preaching on the Gospels. And I didn't want to steal too much of their thunder. And so I didn't really feel right about that. And I struggled with it. I thought, well, stuff it. I mean, this is, this, this is the way it's got to work. I'm, and I ploughed on looking for something. And, uh, and I got this prompting. I thought, y- you're going the wrong way. I'm thinking, it's all very well for you to say, but you haven't told me which way to go. And so I started browsing through the New Testament. Have you ever tried to browse through the New Testament? It's bigger than it looks. And there's a lot of words in it. And it doesn't really lend itself to browsing. But strangely enough, as I was browsing, attempting, I found a phrase that suddenly popped out to me in 1 John. And it was, God is light. And I thought, I like that. That's a powerful phrase. And so I started reading 1 John. And I thought, this guy... This guy was preaching to a group of people who had the same problems that we did. How about instead of leading up to Easter, how about we talk about what what Easter has done for us and then work backwards to find out what happened at Easter? And I felt this load come off and I thought, well, okay. I think God might be with me on this one. I'd just like to tell you that this happened Friday and last night. And so, you know, God brings things to people, but it's not always in plenty of time. Um, and it's very interesting. This is where, because who, who likes to do a job? Who likes to have something put out in front of them and they say, okay, wash the dishes? Now, much as though that's not a job that I really like, it's something I know how to do. You can fill, get hot water, you put the detergent in, you scrub until they're glistening and you, and you put them and then, then you dry them. But when you've got somebody says, um, gives you a job and says, do something, you sort of think, well, what? And, and so it, it, it's very hard unless you've got specifics to do something, unless you know that somebody else has something in mind and they're going to tell you what it is. And God works a bit like that. Sometimes he likes to mess with our thinking so that we can accept his thinking. But it can be stressful. 
And so I, I found this week was not a good week for me. I'm just, I'm just pouring my heart out a bit for you here um, to let you know that it wasn't a happy week for me because I do not like uncertainty in my life. And God seems to love it. And so if this doesn't work, I'm blaming God. Um, <laughs> it took a long time for me to get that out, didn't it? Um, but looking at, looking at, looking at we got, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at one John, two John, and three John. And what struck me about these letters is that John wrote these letters to various people when he was actually a pretty old person. Um, if, we, if we actually have a look, I've got a timeline here of the, and it's in small writing, so you may not be able to read it all. Um, but th th this is a timeline of when scholars think the books of the New Testament were written. Interestingly enough, James seems to have been written first, and various things. But over here, we can see that in a, but somewhere between 80, 86 and 92, 1, 2 and 3 John and the Gospel of John were written. And so this is somewhat like, you know, 60, 70 years after Jesus died and was taken to heaven. And so a reasonable time has passed. And in fact, John is one of the last remaining disciples or apostles who actually walked with Jesus. And so we're approaching a time in church history where the people who actually walked with Jesus are slowly disappearing, either by natural causes or they're being martyred in horrible ways. And so there's a, 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 a gap of where people who are believing in the faith don't have people who have seen Jesus in the flesh to teach them about this. And so some squirrely thinking comes in and there are some devious people around the place which are infecting the church. And so John wrote these letters and he wrote them in a style, who's ever heard the term ad hoc? It's actually a term that means, uh, uh, what does it mean? In the moment. And most of the New Testament was actually written ad hoc. In the moment. All the letters, all the epistles were written ad hoc. And what it actually means is it would, they were written in the moment because they were written in response to problems and challenges that the church faced. And sometimes I think we get this idea that the, the apostles wrote that, sat down and, and thought, well... Let's write out the Gospels because it's good to, to get that in writing that we know what Jesus did. And, and uh, we're going to go and plant some churches. So let's write down some rules before we do that uh, about what could happen to these churches. And, and when we've planted them, we'll just send them letters at random and we may get a book signing out of it. Um, sort of, we may get a preaching tour. Uh, you know, we could supplement our income but with a bit of printing. You know, we could take our, our, um, our product along with us when we preach and just say, you know, I've got this... Uh, book here this one's one John this is really good I wrote this the other day um, <laughs> they didn't actually do any of that stuff what they actually went out and did was they planted churches and they raised up leaders to, to grow these churches and then they went and did the same again and so they were traveling the whole time and news used to get to them about this a particular church and somebody would report, well, this is going on here, and this guy here is preaching this, and, this is, and these people are starting to wonder about sort of what you said about Christ, and, and they're, they're not being able to counter with arguments with this. What do we do? And so they wrote down, in the moment, they said, right, well, this is what we're going to do. And so they'd write a letter to that particular church or church, group of churches, 
And they'd send a messenger off with this letter saying, okay, I, can, I know your problem. Here's, here are the answers to, the, to, to your problems. And so they were written in response. They're not just, they didn't think, okay, let's make up the New Testament and then we can give it out to people. They actually were responding to people's challenges. And so 70 odd years, well, 50 or 60 years on from Jesus' death and resurrection, we've got a group of churches that John has obviously had ministry connections with that he starts to write to. And the, the three letters are actually written to three different recipients. The first one, and we'll look at John 1 this morning, uh, was written to a church that John had obviously had a lot of influence in, maybe even planted. Um, and he, he's writing to them about a very serious issue that they're facing. Uh, the second letter, which is much shorter, probably only a page, a piece of papyrus, um, depending on how big... John's writing was, I, I don't really know. Um, but that was to a, a church that we think was probably in an area where persecution was uh, fairly rife because the letter's written in code. Uh, he actually addresses it to the good lady and her children, which uh, scholars believe is actually just code for the church. But if somebody uh, sort of stopped the writer or, or the, the messenger on his way and read the letter, it wouldn't appear to be particularly um, church-like. Uh, and the third letter, which is also short, is actually written to a single person by the name of Gaius. And so we'll cover uh, those um, in the following Sundays. So what, what's the first question you want to ask about one John? Anybody? Just throw them out. They're probably wrong, but tell me, ask me anyway. Who's it written to? That's, a good, that's not the first question, but well, actually we don't know. So there's the answer to that one. It was a church, but we don't know the location of the church or who, who they were. Why did he write it? I mean, sitting here, he's writing a letter, so why, why, did, he, why did he write this? And the reason, that, very simple. John was writing to a church under attack by the Antichrist. Isn't that... Actually, it was under attack by lots of Antichrists uh, with a small a. Um, because an antichrist is just somebody who is anti-Christ. And so what was happening was there was a group of people who had sort of got into the church and then started to spread a, a doctrine that actually said, well, was Jesus really the Messiah? Now, we, we've got this theory that Jesus was just this person and the Holy Spirit at various times in his life sort of inhabited him and made him do things but then left again. So he wasn't really the son of God. And so the people in the church here are getting worried about, you know, how, how do we counter these accusations? We're, we're worried that perhaps we're following the wrong person or that, that something we're unaware of is happening here. They're, they, they're claiming to have secret knowledge that, that we don't have. I mean, the, the whole... Anybody ever seen um, that movie, The Da Vinci Code? The whole premise of that movie is based on the fact that there's a secret that none of us poor plebeian Christians know uh, that God has hidden from us just to make life miserable. And th these people are being inundated with the same sort of thinking. People are coming and saying, well, no, what John's told you, you don't have access to Jesus. You, you, you don't have access to God. He doesn't forgive sins. You're only going to get to heaven if you live a perfect sinless life. And you can imagine if people come up and argue this in a strong way, it's like, oh, Really? No, that wasn't what I was told. John! And they didn't... I know this is a shock, but they didn't have mobile phones back then. And so they couldn't actually just text John and say, 
dear John, you know, problems here, please advise. Smiley face, smiley face, poo. Um, <laughs> they had to send a messenger to John who repeated their story. And, and John actually threatens to visit. I'm not sure threatens the right word, but he, he says, look, here's, here's, uh, here's what you need to do in response. And if you have too much trouble with that, I'll, I'll come and sort them out for you. And so in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, we've got his report here about what is happening to them. And it says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they didn't belong with us. And so these false teachers have come saying that Jesus wasn't the Christ. They've put pressure on Christians to, to live a sinless life to gain salvation. But the liars have now left and those who are, remain need to be sure of the truth. And so the first thing that, Jesus, that John does to address this attack on the church is to reinforce the character of God to the church. Now it's interesting, one of the reasons that this, these letters interested me was that if you look at the situation, it's only 50, 60 years since Christ had been resurrected to heaven. And yet already doubt's creeping in. And if you look, it's about 2,000 plus years now since it happened. But if you look at the church today, we are under the same sort of attack. There's a, there's a whole culture out there which is trying to tell us Jesus A, didn't exist, and B, wasn't the Son of God. They're trying to... Uh, most of the... Uh, negative press you see about Christians is about the way they live. It's like, how can you be someone godly because you don't live a sinless life? And so the same arguments are being thrown at the church today as were being thrown at the church in John's time. And interestingly enough, John's answers work for the church today as well. So John sums up everything he knows about God, everything he knows about God's character and power, and he puts it into one phrase. He says, God is light. He expands a bit more. He says in uh, one, chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. How much darkness is in God? None. And he uses this as a rallying cry. God is light. Everything about light is what everything about God is. There's power. There's majesty. It banishes darkness, all of these things. He's brilliant in power. He's beautiful and he's holy. Like light, God makes his presence known. Like light, his power shines out. And like light, he rescues those in darkness. God's character affects the way we live. Light and darkness can have nothing to do with each other. We can't walk in the light of God and still indulge in our secret and shameful sins. We must either turn to his light or hide from him. Because Jesus died for us and his blood, his blood, sorry, his blood has blotted out our guilt. You see, I didn't get a lot of sleep while thinking about these things with God. We are free to live a holy life. Notice it doesn't say we are called or we have, we have a, a dedication. We're free to live it. It's not something we're forced to do. It's not something which has bound us but we are free to live a holy life. We walk in the light of God in open friendship 
with all his forgiven people. Notice it doesn't say all his perfect people. It's hard to walk in friendship with perfect people. They don't exist. <laughs> so all of you who thought you were perfect can come up for prayer afterwards. Um, he, he gives us a couple of clues. He says, reject the world, choose God. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. He also talks about the fact that these people, these believers, these forgiven Christians have an anointing and a promise given to them. Verse 20 says, you are not like that, meaning the people of the world. He says, for the Holy One has given you his spirit and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. So here he reinforces the fact that we've been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in us is what gives us the truth. God doesn't have secrets in he heaven hidden from us. He has secrets hidden for us, but they are revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. You should be more excited than this. This is exciting stuff. Actually, can I, can I digress a bit here? <laughs> Justine. <laughs> Weird stuff happens when you're preparing a message. And I don't know why, but your name popped into my head and God gave me this message for you, which I think is helpful, but I really don't know. <laughs> he said, you're looking for something and you're seeking something. You will find what you seek, but not what you're looking for. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> uh, while I'm here, James and Alicia... I got pictures, pictures of your hands. And I really felt God says, you guys are physical people. Um, and I know that Leisha works with her hands and, and, uh, and James um, pretends to build a house with his. Um, and is doing very well, don't you laugh. Um, but I really got the feeling God was saying, the physicality of what you do actually has a spiritual element to it. And that although you, you actually do... You make physical miracles with your hands, if you like. You heal people, you build things, you do things which people can see in the physical. But God says there's actually a spiritual aspect to that, which he is actually going to draw out more and more in the coming days. As you do physical things, you are actually going to see a spiritual result from those things as you do them. Whatever that means. I believe that it's going to actually do something quite, quite magnificent. Graham. Don't know why I got the picture of a hibernating bear, <laughs> and I don't think there's nothing physical about that. Um, but what I saw was that there's a, there's a warmth. Bears hibernate because of the cold outside, and they they keep a warmth inside of them, which enables them to, when spring comes, to go and reproduce and eat and and uh, and live what we would consider a an outdoor sort of life. And I believe God's saying to you that there's a there's a there's a flame inside of you which you've kept banked and protected uh, through a long winter. And he's saying to you that that fire uh, is now going to explode. You're going to have, release that fire inside of you, let it burn, and your life will change because of the flame that, that bursts from the inside of you. Okay. Uh, I should preach a bit more, I think. Um, 
preaching is never simple. Where was I? Anointing and promise. We've got the Holy Spirit in us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit guides us in ways that are surprising. But we're anointed for that. The word anointed implies that we've been put called aside and actually had oil from heaven poured onto us. We are, we are the greasy ones of God because we've got something on us which purifies us, cleanses us, and also enables us to be guided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would guide them in all truth. And so the readers of this letter can be assured that the Holy Spirit will give them the wisdom and understanding they need in the face of these subtle and dangerous lies that they're facing. The third thing he tells, reminds them of is that we are the children of God. Chapter 2 verse 28 says, And now their children remain in fellowship with Christ, so that when he returns you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we know that all who do what is right are God's children. So he's thinking about how people can move forward out of this mess. He encourages his readers to remain in Christ, to commit themselves day by day to his truth and his life. He reminds them that Jesus is coming back one day and they need to be ready to receive him when he does. And he reminds us of the central fact of our faith that God loves us and has made us his children. If hard times come, it's because we're living in a world that actually resists God. But our future is actually set and it's glorious and we're to share in the glory of Jesus. And so he, he's encouraging the people in the church to actually remember who God is, what he's like, what he has promised and what he's actually delivering into their lives. So that's the first thing. The second thing, surprisingly enough, he reminds the church that their love for one another is the next most important thing. Who'd have thought? Love God, love one another. You could write a gospel on that. And John is actually bringing back, because there's this gap that people have slowly drifted away from what the disciples taught on the day of Pentecost, 60-odd years before. And he is just bringing back a reminder of what was said. Loving our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought, also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions and our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. We're to love our brothers and sisters. Not our natural brothers and sisters. Either that's a given or that's really hard to do. Um, but our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, Jesus has shown us how to love by laying down his life instead of taking the lives of others. John is being really practical here. It means sharing what we have. It means giving to those in need. It means not just good ideas and holy thoughts, but action. We show the truth by doing it. John says that when we do right, we're comfortable with God. Interesting thought. 
he's talking to people here who, who are, are sensitive. When people come and tell lies, who knows that it actually scars people. And so, you know, when trust is given to the wrong people, when it's demolished in people's lives, torn down, it leaves scars. And so to, to keep that trust is actually hard for people. There are still people out there in this church he's talking to and they're out there in the world and in, in churches today who aren't sure about the claims of false teachers. They fear they haven't done enough for God. People have put doubt in their mind that well, perhaps you're not good enough. Perhaps you should try harder. Perhaps God doesn't love you. And so John here assures them that God knows all about their concerns and he overrules their fears. As I said earlier, God knows all about you, all about me. And some of those things are things we'd rather God didn't know, but he does. So in 1 John 4.18, he says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, is for fear of punishment. And this shows we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but I hate a fellow believer, that person is a liar. Not because he's lying about hating the fellow believer, because he's lying about loving God. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. So he turns again to the topic of love. There's more to Christian life than resisting error and testing the Spirit of God. The positive side is shown in the love Christians have for each other. Let's do it, writes John. This is before even Nike thought of it. Let's do it. Let's live together in the love of God. Love is first of all something we receive from God. He's shown his love in sending Jesus to die for us. Jesus won forgiveness of our sins and restored us to life in the family of God. If this is how much God loves us, surely we can love one another even just a little bit. So here we have it. We see in 1 John a crisis which mirrors our own struggles today. We often, I think, look back on the, the things that happen in, in the New Testament in the days of Jesus and think, well, there weren't as many people around. They didn't have the pressures of life that we have. Um, how, how can things written 2,000 years ago impact us? And yet if you look closely at their culture, they were in a lot more danger th than us. You know, the Romans ruled their province and the, the, the force of law was actually the force of law. If you disobeyed the law, the Romans had a perfect right to just come and chop off your head. There was no application to have the fine waived at the uh, at services SA if you were speeding. There was no recourse to the Supreme Court to have your sentence commuted to hard work in the gravel mines. The, you know, if they didn't like what you'd done, you were dead. There's a fear there. There's a, there's a, a coercive factor there that I don't think any of us understand uh, because our lives are, are precious to our government as much as anybody else, which is something which is very foreign back in the first century AD. So, but we're faced with a similar culture, which is anti-Christ. The culture of that, their day was often anti-Christ, but pro another God. 
Here, our culture is anti-Christ and pro-no God. But the thing is that the pressure on the church is still the same. There are constant attempts to erode our faith and to diminish the importance of godly morals and ethics. And we're bombarded with those on a daily basis. But the remedy is still the same. We can be certain of the character and promises of God because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It hasn't changed. The best weapon that we have against the world is the love we show one another. Things haven't changed. We're called to love one another. We're called to have the Spirit of God operating in our lives to show that love. You're all looking at me like you're expecting something. Can you come up, Jordan? Next week, I actually want to continue with that, this discussion because John changes things slightly when he addresses his next church in 2 John. And there are some little nuances there that I want to pick up and talk about. So we're going to leave it right there. But can I ask you to stand with me? This, this letter of 1 John was probably written at about the same time that John was writing his gospel. And we can see a lot of the themes in this letter are repeated from the gospel of John. And they're timeless things that are important in every Christian's life today. The first of which is, of course, that we have to have a relationship with God. And the second, that we need a good relationship with other believers. The relationship with God comes first. And so I, I want to offer an opportunity this morning, as we do every Sunday morning, that if you're here listening to this message and you do not have a relationship with God, the desire of Jesus' heart is that we are in relationship with Him. He will move literally heaven and earth to have us in relationship with Him. And he is so invested in that, he makes it very simple. He's taken away all the barriers between him and us. And he has stepped forward into our world and said, come to me. Be one of my children. The only thing that we have to do is accept that offer. Now, being a gentleman, he doesn't force that on us. He says, my hand is out, but I'm not going to force anything until you reach your hand towards me and connect with me and the way we do that is that we make a public declaration in our church that we are going to be a follower of Jesus and we do that with a, with a short prayer and I'd love to lead you if you've never said that prayer before or you've said it before but would like to refresh that commitment the prayer, a prayer that just says Lord I want to follow you I want to be a child of God. I want to put my old life behind me, take on a new life with you as my Lord and Saviour. And so can I ask everybody just to close their eyes. If you're here this morning, you've never said that prayer or you know that you need to say it again to recommit your life to Jesus Christ. While every head's bowed and every eye closed, if you could raise your hand so that I could see it right now, and I would love to pray that prayer with you. Is there anyone at all here? 
who wants to start a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Raise your hand high if you are. and We'll pray together to invite Jesus into your heart. Awesome. You can open your eyes now. Can I pray for you before we finish? Lord, I thank you that as our hearts are open to your word this morning, that you place a deposit of riches in our hearts that will come to the surface, change our life and the lives of people around us as we come closer to you, as we acknowledge you more in our lives and as we operate more in your spirit to become more like you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for faithful people. Thank you, Lord, that we acknowledge that you were and are the Messiah and we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. What a great message. God is light. And we are to be that light. You know, if we say that we love God and we don't love others, we're liars. I was talking to somebody the other day about loving everybody and about how the Bible talks about loving others, how we are to love others. And you know, I remember hearing a message years ago that love is not the same as like. Heck, I don't like everybody, do you? Just being honest, not everybody likes me. I know that might come as a shock. <laughs> I know that. Some people like me, some people don't. But love and like are two different things. And you know, Chris said this morning that love is something we receive. And the Bible talks about love. It says that love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. You know, loving somebody is just about being those things for others. You don't necessarily have to like somebody to not be rude to them. You can be polite and courteous and friendly and warm, even if you don't particularly like them. It's important that we show those qualities to somebody else, that we treat others with respect. Just something to think about for this week.